0: Do it over. We'll start it from here. (laughs) Welcome everyone to our podcast. My name is Ryan. I'm here with my co-host Levite. We are both people who work in the social justice industrial complex. And our podcast is all about talking about and discussing and trying to figure out that the social justice industrial complex, the the industry. We both work in. Hi, Levite. How's it going?
1: Hey, Ryan. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. So just to introduce uh, the podcast, this is the third episode of Social Justice Incorporated, the podcast where we try to... Provide a critical lens on the social justice industrial complex and social justice professions, social justice professional managerial class, if you will. Uh, I'm Ryan. I'm here with my co-host Levit, and we're recording on July 14th, uh, although this episode will obviously go to air a bit later than that. So Levite, how are you doing?
1: doing okay another beautiful day in southern california i uh can't roller skate right now because i injured myself roller skating
0: yeah if it's any consolation like most people with like laptop jobs everything kind of is like in dull kind of pain all the time like you know my back is really bad and so forth so um i probably shouldn't complain too much because you know it's like so low on the spectrum of problems but uh yes
1: i watched a movie i haven't that came out three years ago that now i'm very into um which was the most recent Gaspar noe masterpiece climax and i hate all his other movies so i was really excited that i liked this movie as much as i did uh, three years old, four stars from Levite, um, horrifying and beautiful. So you would not like it, Ryan. Don't see it.
0: Yeah, Levite knows me well and knows that I have a pretty weak stomach and weak tolerance for any sort of like horror type stuff. So probably not my thing. The last, the last horror movie I think I've seen was Don't Breathe, which I saw in the theater. And that... Yeah, that, that did it for, like, at least a half a decade. Um, but, no, this, I don't think I've ever seen a single Gaspar Noé movie, but it's never really seemed like my kind of thing.
1: I He does seem like my kind of thing, but I did not like any of his other movies, and, like, um, I saw I, Into the Void on a like a second date, which is a terrible idea. Cause it's two hours and 45 minutes long. Didn't like that movie. Didn't like the date. Um, and, uh, but climax is hun- an hour and a half. It's beautifully done. The dancing alone is incredible. It's such a work of art and it's absolutely disgusting and horrifying. Uh, therefore I liked it very much. The mystery is really good. Um, Anyway, if you liked it, let me know because I really liked it. <laughs> and no one, everyone's like, everyone. We saw this movie three years ago. And we don't want to talk about it. Well, I just saw it, and I really want to talk about it because I really liked it.
0: So, all you know a heads in the comments, <laughs> uh, get at us. Let us know if it if it lived up to his earlier work, or whether you agree with Levitt that it's the first good thing he's ever done. Uh, one like, phrase I wasn't totally expecting was for you to be, like, the dancing was really good? That's yeah. that not, not really the impression I had of <laughs> these kind of movies.
1: Um, it's a movie about dancers. Um, and the, if anyone here, I'm sure there's a lot of people on Sublation who absolutely, definitely watch Pose, I'm sure, and Legendary, um, if you're into that shit, which I am. Um, the dancing was, like, mind-blowing, and his, you can really see his artistry as a director, which I had always kind of, like, scoffed at, because I thought his movies were so boring and terrible, um, but the way he films the dancing is truly unique and beautiful. Um, the main actress is, like, amazing. Her name is, I think it's Sophia Batella, maybe is how you say her last name. She's a pretty famous Algerian actress, and she well, I was really pleased to know she was, like, 40 years old when she did this movie, which was, like, hell yeah. Like, yeah. I thought she was, like, a, like 21 years old and, like, you know, this incredible dancer, but she's, you
0: know, our, uh, my, our my age group.
1: <laughs> and she's amazing. Um, and if you can't, if, if you don't mind gore, uh, I recommend it. And if you like scary movies, which I do, I recommend it. It wasn't the body horror masterpiece of the year, which was Titane, which was another movie we could talk about another time, which you will also hate. Um, not quite that gory, uh, but very scary, very well done. Um, the mystery was great. So yeah, I love talking about this because Ryan will never see it. And I'm clearly just talking to myself, but every, no one else has talk about me so I thought I would bring it up.
0: I I'm not gonna say never, but <laughs> I watched a really crappy movie a few weeks ago which was maybe has some relevance to our podcast because it's one of the few movies I've seen where the main character is a social worker. Uh, the movie's called The Gateway and it has the American character actor Shay Wigan in who people will recognize from a lot of mostly good TV shows but I think also good movies and uh, he's uh, he plays Ray on uh, vice principals which is you know probably the the role of his that i like the most um and uh so he's this like hard drinking hard living gun-toting social worker and he's trying to save olivia munn and her kid from her nerdy well uh ex-husband and it's not really good like i kind of watched it because i was bored and tired but uh Not really good, but it was kind of interesting to see. I mean, one thing that's interesting is he's depicted in kind of class, it's kind of the classic cop movie trope of like cities falling apart, the city of St. Louis, Missouri, and the whole department are full of people just, you know, collecting a paycheck. In this case, it's the Department of Child Protective Services. And he's like the only dedicated one and it goes kind of full like renegade cop narrative cuz he like beats up one of the other social workers so they're like you're off, you're off the force like who has that yeah um yeah so it's you know i don't know i i can't really say i would recommend it but kind of interesting to see i don't think i don't know if we'll do this every episode but I wanted to address one of the comments that we had. We, so first of all, thanks to everyone who's commenting, uh, even, even the critical comments. Uh, but yeah, no, thanks to everyone who's commenting on the videos, both on Patreon and on YouTube, because it's great to know that people are you know, listening to us and hearing what we have to say and so on. Uh, that's really rewarding. One comment I wanted to address just because I think it brought up a good point, but also where maybe I can kind of clear up what I was getting at um, is so uh, somebody named Benjamin Landau, Byspiel or Byspiel, sorry if I'm not saying it right, uh, commented about our last video um, and pointing out that this was about 28 minutes into the last video. I'll just read the comment for everyone's ease of access. So, Ryan asserts that conflicts over working conditions between nonprofit employees and their bosses are not class conflicts because nonprofit employees are part of the, quote, bourgeoisie slash PMC. This reminds me of the class analysis of the, quote, populist right, which constantly espouses the idea that nonprofit staffers and adjunct professors are part of the ruling class because of their role in promulgating, quote, woke woke culture. Ironically, it also tracks with the worldview of the very same PC identitarians criticized in the video, who likewise resist seeing these workplace conflicts in class terms. Um, yeah, a, interesting comment because and I think, you know, probably the final sentence is maybe the most interesting because that's very true. And that, you know, I think is one of the major takeaways from, from that Ryan Grimm article was the extent to which nobody in those conversations was really framing it in a class way. And that would include most of the interview subjects who are critical of their kind of woke, younger staffers, uh, but also obviously the people raising these things and talking about, you know, for example, how the Audubon society is shot through from top to bottom, every poor with anti-Blackness and stuff like that. Um, so that that's an interesting point in the way that, and I think, the answer is, of course, yeah, because to me, a big part of what makes a perspective right-wing is that it, it's going to avoid or kind of obscure a class analysis. But I wanted to kind of also use this comment just to kind of talk about what I was saying. You know, the question of who is and who isn't working class is, is a really big one, and I don't obviously have authority on that, but I do try to have some political insight into that. Because I think if you have a left wing politics and Marxist politics, it's something you have to think about because although this can get pretty obscured these days, supposedly you see the working class as the, the revolutionary subject, right? As the, the, the force in society that can change society for the better in a, in a revolutionary way. And So with that in mind, I want to address the point, you know, are people, and in this example, it's, you know, nonprofit employees, adjunct professors, are they working class? I think this is something we'll come back to on this, on this podcast a lot, but what I would say my really kind of insightful answer is yes and no. And I think, where I would say yes is obviously if you're being paid a wage, a low wage to do a job, then in one sense, you are part of the working class, but in another sense, and I think for me, this is the political sense. No, you're not. And so, and I would include myself in this, you know, I, I'm a lawyer, which in the 19th century was one of the so-called learned professions, but I work for a salary in a, Publicly funded setting, and I'm unionized, albeit in a fake way, because in Ontario, Canada, and most I think a lot of parts of North America, there's a lot of legal qualifications on lawyers' ability to unionize. So, in that sense, sure, but I don't really think I am. I think, you know, I'm more of a kind of PMC or petty bourgeois intellectual or professional, depending on how you want to categorize me. And for people who work at nonprofits and adjunct professors and so on, I think the same is basically true. Uh, I'm not talking sociologically. I don't think it's limited just to that. I think it's one way that I try to think about it is who has the ability by virtue of, their class position by what, virtue of what they do to, to really kind of disrupt or paralyze the economy. And the everyone we've described so far is not that, you know, like, I'm not. Uh, and in a scenario where I try to strike or withdraw my labor power, on the one hand, I'm not stopping the functioning of the economy in any way. And really, the, the, main, the main victims would just be the, the people I serve, who tend to be already some of the most vulnerable people in society. So, you know, and so some people, there's, the, you know, and, and there's a similar thing with teachers' unions, right? They always have this, you know, when teachers' unions strike, there's always that dilemma of kind of the fact that they are interrupting not really a productive process like making something or selling something or distributing something, but a kind of social good, right? That, you know, we would basically all agree that we want to educate children. And then also by virtue of the fact that, you know, both men and women are largely in the workforce, we need a place where we can put children during the day. Otherwise, as we saw during the COVID pandemic, you're basically compelling people to, to drop out of the workforce to do childcare. So that's always been a, a challenge for teachers' unions. Other people, it's it's even more marginal than that. Uh, Jacobin, I don't have the citation with me right now. but Jacobin ran an article recently about museum workers organizing, which like great, I'm like very supportive of that happening, and I hope people get a union where they work. They get a better, you know, better working conditions, better uh, wages. I think when you're in a kind of cultural sector that has some cachet, often that goes hand in hand with kind of being underpaid and exploited. So that's great. And generally they're, you know, they had to spend a fair amount of time in school to to be there, but, uh, but they're not, you know, what they're doing is really marginal to the economy. And if they go on strike, that's not, stopping anything from happening. That's not causing any sort of like pain or crisis for the for the capitalist class. And so in that sense, I you know, I think that's something that I would like people to really think about when we use this category. And like I said, it's a bigger question. This is just kind of one part of the answer. But so when I said that people in the bourgeoisie slash PMC Specifically, the people we were speaking about are not part of the working class. That's kind of what I mean. That I don't think they have the political power, or to be more honest, given the state of things nowadays, potential political power to 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 alter society, to alter social conditions.
1: Yeah, I also wanna. I agree with you, Ryan. Um, but but another part of the a comment that I was thinking about as someone who works also, um, for a government agency, I have a union and I work as an adjunct professor. Um, I think that there's a difference between the kind of harnessing the political power of the working class that you were talking about, but also acknowledging that us as like elder millennials, um, we aren't able to really have any sort of social mobility. That's true too, but that doesn't mean that they're the same thing. And I acknowledge that as, um, you know, holding the positions that I do, um, in the work that I do, um, and and what that really means, you know, in a sort of economic hierarchy. Even though, um, like, I do have all these, I do have a certain amount of economic. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? I do have a sort of economic stability. Um, that does not mean that I'm in the same class as the working class. So.
0: Yeah. And that, I mean, that like you've, you've added like another level of the complexity here because a lot of people will maybe think about this purely in terms of income, but there even that's not necessarily the case because there's people who make, I think pretty good money who I think still we probably should categorize as being part of the working class. And, you know, the remaining good unionized blue-collar jobs are part of that. This came up in Canada, and I think to a lesser extent in the United States, with the discussion around the freedom convoy that happened back in February. And you had this phenomenon of a lot of mostly leftists, I think, coming out to kind of Be like well you know do the sort of well actually thing um just imagine the, you know cheat here like finger in the air uh to kind of be like well none of them are actually working class you know it's not it's not a workers protest in any way it's not you know it's not comparable to a strike because strikes are good this is you know and there was a lot of kind of nitpicking and the answer is well yeah some of the people obviously weren't working class but others were they just were a type of worker that people didn't necessarily like especially in that moment because of uh, the political opinions they were holding but on the income point you know i people can make a lot of money i think and they can make more money than us which a lot of them do like if you're in any sort of skilled trade you're probably making more money than we are and even you know, I would imagine if you think about, for example, like the auto sector, they've probably retired a lot of the people who, were because a lot of them, there's a lot of two-tier contracts and stuff. But if you have people on the upper end of those two-tier contracts, they're probably making a lot more as well. So to say nothing of like, you know, some of the better public sector jobs that are out there, which are better paid than than what we're doing. So it's, it's definitely complex. And... The final thing I wanted that I kind of forgot to mention before is just in terms of the ruling class. Well, obviously I don't think that, like, I don't, I, you know, there is, I think a, a kind of new right um, perspective or kind of populist right perspective that, that actually sees the woke PMC as kind of a ruling class. I think that doesn't make any sense. Uh, It, it never did the earlier version of that, the sort of, James Burnham, like managers as a new ruling class perspective, didn't make sense at the time and was obviously falsified by the way history turned out. And it doesn't make sense now to describe people like that. It might be one thing to talk about a certain degree of hegemony to certain ideas. And I think that's true to some extent of what we could kind of call as wokeness. But even that is questionable, uh, especially in the United States um but no i and in general like ruling class is not i think a productive term because it's not you know capitalism is more number one it's international number two it's depersonalized decentralized a good example of this that we're all going to probably see in the next little while is elon musk he's one of the wealthiest people in the world he may be going down very, very hard as a result of this Twitter thing and some of his other actions. And, you know, this is a system that can take even one of its wealthiest and seemingly mo- most powerful participants and like just, you know, completely smash them against a the wheel and, and not miss a beat and the system itself will be intact. So, you know, I, I don't, ruling class is not really how I think of it. What I try to do, which is hard because we're always getting kind of uh, distracted from that is think of it really in terms of capitalism as a system and a system of competing social classes, but not where there's some sort of ruling clique or ruling cabal or anything like that. I feel like this is more of a rambling answer than possible, but I think what I would say is it's it's a question I think we're going to return to on the podcast, and we can probably do a bit more reading and discussion in that area. So I'm grateful for the comment in terms of sparking this maybe meandering discussion on my part. And to kind of close, I would say keep, keep them coming.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just want to add one more uh, rambling note, which also might not even make sense, but cost of living. I actually think that I do make a pretty good living wage if it was five years ago and things were in a different space. I mean, it's just the cost of living has just exploded to the point where like, you can't really, I mean, a single income person um, really support yourself in many of these big cities. Um, So I think that that's also part of the larger discussion so my wage is good. It is a, It was a good wage, mm-hmm. um, but it's changing so quickly and my wages are not keeping up. Like I, my rent went up 9.5% this year. I haven't had a raise since... I like get a 2% cost of living wage and I haven't had one since 2019. So, it's,
0: yeah. Yeah, and that, I think when you talk to our peers, that's where a lot of the sense of crisis comes from. It's, it's, it's exactly that kind of thing that people are feeling squeezed and they're feeling like they can't attain what you know their parents or kind of people, their colleagues who are 10, 20, 30 years older, were able to do. I, I feel in a big you know, I have I have a colleague who is a lawyer, but was originally a library worker and she bought her first house in her 20s and you know was stretching herself somewhat financially but was like this is a good investment i can do it so i'll do it um and it's not even possible now unless somebody has especially where she did in toronto it's a very nice neighborhood um yeah not even i mean not remotely possible except with huge infusions of family money and that that tends to be a major dividing line among people probably we know in terms of whether they're they have access to that or not um yeah anyway just so,
1: wanted
0: to add that sorry no no, no. <laughs> i mean it's it's it, 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 it's it's definitely it's definitely a big part of it as well and i think especially like what do people feel the most immediately right the cost of living cost of housing
1: I was sent this article by a friend of mine who lives in San Francisco and she was like, what are your thoughts on this? So I was like, what better place uh, to talk about it um, than on the podcast? Um, And now I'm going to find it and tell you exactly when it was published. It was in the San Francisco Chronicle, published July 12th, uh, 2022, or yeah, July 12th, 2022, by Mallory... Menarsh, I'm probably uh, mispronouncing her name. Um, but anyway, it's a short article uh, detailing the beginnings of a new uh, program, social service program in San Francisco, um, which their, their homeless problem is probably just as bad as L.A. Um, the income inequality there is ridiculous, it's an impossible city to live in. Um, so, you know, they're dealing with a lot of similar issues in San Francisco as they are in Los Angeles. Um, and basically this program has a great acronym, like all of these programs, including the one I work for an acronym program, uh, CART, uh, compassionate alternative response team, um, which is supposed to divert, um, police and 911 calls, uh, to deal with issues of people experiencing homelessness. Um, And it's supposed to be, I believe, peers. So what we call peers in the field, which are uh, people who have experienced homelessness or people with mental illness that come out and respond with you and a professional. And that could, I assume, be a nurse or a social worker or a psychologist or any of the sort. Um, Great. My response to that is great. That's lovely. Um, What are you going to do to address... The expectation issues of this program because I can already tell you what's going to happen. Um, the response time is going to be hours because this is this is not a novel thing. And I think this is the issue um, that I have with this: is that they're telling you this like it's some sort of innovative approach, and it simply is not. I do it. There are plenty of other acronym teams that do it. E six C three. Uh, uh, my acronym, which I won't say right now, (laughs) PMRT. I mean, all of these acronyms teams that are all different types of professional helpers that come together and try and solve the problem of homelessness without addressing any structural issues whatsoever. Um, So I'm going to already say that this response time at best will be ours. Um, You're going to have people responding that sure maybe I'm gonna, I will definitely say that at police normally escalate these situations. So obviously, that's a good thing. You have people responding that are not gonna escalate a situation, hopefully, maybe de escalate it, right? Because that's what we're trained to do. Um, but go in without any actual help or resources because there's no structural changes to our healthcare systems, mental health systems, or you know, actual affordable housing. So you show up somewhere and someone, let's say, is languishing in a driveway and doesn't want to move. And you say, here's a bottle of water, you know, and here's a flyer. If you feel like getting up and coming to this clinic, we'd love to help you. Otherwise there isn't really much we can do. So you're telling me like the tech bro world of San Francisco is going to deal with this. No, they're not. Um. And that's, and that's my issue is like, we throw all these money at these programs, but we don't actually take the initiative to, to address like what the expectations of the community are. I want people to ask them, like, what do you want from this program? What are you expecting it to do? Um, When you don't add sobering centers with it or uh, mental health beds or, or apartments, like people are going to get people are going to see this as kind of like another frivolous attempt.
0: And isn't the budget something incredibly low?
1: It's it's starting with 3 million. And then uh, I think they're going to invest a total of like 6.8 million. So yeah, like it's abysmal and it's a nonprofit also. Um, So maybe it's contracted. That's what that says to me. The city is, paying an agency to do this work as opposed to doing it themselves um, which never in my experience ends up good or well
0: it also yeah i mean that was one detail that caught my eye because you know a bunch of things come out of that number one obviously probably the wages for the people involved and i would imagine especially the peers are going to be a joke exactly uh, and that's you know that, that i mean that i don't think that's like necessarily like shining much of a light on it that's probably pretty pretty obvious and then the other thing is also the the uh, you know on one hand kind of standard neoliberal like we just can't have the state do this there has to be some sort of arms length of relationship but then also the obvious deniability of like if it goes wrong in, in one way or another then it'll be like problem is we trusted these goofy hippies or activists to, to run this thing and it didn't work. So, you know, we'll go back to voting for an increase in the police budget so they can get out there and break some heads or whatever.
1: Exactly. Um, because at the end of the day, like, you're not, th- this cannot be solved <laughs> with just having social workers respond to something. There's this weird, like, yeah, neoliberal obsession with like putting in social workers as if we can do anything without any sort of systemic infrastructure that you're going to do. Um, I I believe I have a special talent of talking to people, experiencing homelessness. I think I'm good at it. I think I'm good at talking to people, de-escalating people who are in crisis. All of that can be true. Um, but if I deescalate someone, which happens all the time, and then I go, oh yeah, um, here's a flyer. <laughs> um, and, you know, um, hopefully a bed will open up. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, that's the truth. Um, I absolutely love what I do. I think, and I'm lucky enough that that isn't my, my the bulk of my job. I work with a very specific um, population where it's a little different. Um, but I have done that work before, um, and it's, it's, it's just like a, it's, it's just so typical. I'm not like, like, and to act, and, and the thing that upsets me the most is like this article is acting like it's something innovative, like it hasn't been done a million times before. Um, and, and again, like, like you said, Ryan, um, it's gonna, it's gonna like backfire and then people are gonna ask for more funding for police. Whereas if you really want to defund the police and you really want to abolish police, and I consider myself an abolitionist in that way, um, you need to start from a structural point. First, you redefine what crime is. Like what are police even doing? This is the work they're doing right now, right? They're not like out there catching criminals. The criminals they're catching are typically people who are committing crimes of survival or using drugs or um, you know, it's a result of the economic strife that they're in many times. Um, police don't like that part of their job. They don't. They don't like dealing with it. Well, explain to them that is their fucking job, because that's what we're dealing with right now. Um, and and defund private prisons. Let's like start there. Take the money toward private prisons and open um, not shelters like real places where people can live and thrive. Um, build infrastructure for people who need that kind of custodial level of care. That have severe mental illness or severe physical illness which i see all the time mm-hmm. um de-privatized healthcare. health all of this is like it's it's so it's like silly it's just it's silly and it's sad um and i just already know what's going to happen um watch the public response watch them call police anyway that's what's going to happen
0: and i'm no expert but my sense is in san francisco there's been a kind of slow build of Basically, what you could call a reaction, I think, in terms of moving more and more towards a kind of really, which I'm sure they were always doing, but like a kind of punitive law and order response to homelessness and crimes of survival. And I know that the, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot going on there uh, in terms of own goals, because you know we're talking about the American left. Uh, but the recent recall of the district attorney they had out there, Chesa Bowden, I think is how you say his name, who obviously, I mean, it, it is an interesting figure in terms of his his background and like who his parents are and so forth. And the fact that, you know, kind of tell a story of the American left just within his family to some extent. But uh you know elected with a lot of hopes trumpeted by kind of left wing media as one of this kind of wave of progressive das and it seems like in some ways he was more legit in terms of doing what he said he would do than others and then but of course got you know recalled for it and yeah it does seem like the the tendency there is more just to sort some sort of crackdown because like you said, the kind of tech bros and so forth don't want to live in a city that has that. But, you know, one point I think we've made before on this podcast and we'll make again, also nobody wants to live with some of this stuff. Like, you know, right. when you have, like, you have to be a very specific type of bohemian person from an upper middle class background, I think to be like, Oh, good. My street's full of like, you know, human waste, or somebody's doing, you know, dangerous drugs like in the street. People are ODing around me and stuff like that. That's not, that's not good. And as much as we don't want, uh, you know, a thuggish, punitive response to that, at the same time, that doesn't mean you have to valorize it. Uh, A lot of people talk about, for example, like late 70s New York and how cool it was. But Many of them, if you, I think, you know, put them in a time machine and sent them back there and made them just like ride the subway for a day or something, would be uh, begging to be returned to, you know, contemporary Brooklyn or contemporary Silver Lake instead. Because, it, it, you know, when you read about it, it was tough. It was great, you know, it was a very crazy, difficult place to be living. And crime was really high, which didn't just mean extraordinary things like the well-known, you know, Kitty Genovese case, but also just like getting robbed a lot and, you know, getting held up at knife point or gunpoint and so forth. And uh, obviously at that time, there's also all kinds of street harassment and sexual assault and, you know, homophobic attacks were, were way more common. Like things were just kind of more violent and more chaotic in the 1970s. It's not something, People should want to return to as much as we might wish we could get back. You know, the New York Dolls and the, the famous Iggy Pop, James Williamson, Kill City EP, and so forth. That would be so cool, though. That would be great. I mean, like literally one song as good as "I Got Nothing" would would, <laughs> would really redeem 2022. But uh, but no, yeah. So, it, I do kind of wonder if these not necessarily designed to fail, but that. There is something kind of fundamentally counterproductive about these underfunded, maybe not super well-conceived end point kind of, you know, like street level as opposed to more infrastructure-based approaches to, to these problems.
1: Um, yeah, and, we've t- and exactly. And we've talked about this a lot. And we talked about it with Freddie and we'll probably keep talking about it. Um, this idea of like the left kind of supporting um, these these type of measures, and I totally understand the kind of instinct to do so, but as opposed to pushing for something real and something lasting and something systemic and having like an intellectually honest conversation, like you were saying, you know, uh, I feel like a lot of people are, you know, valorizing and romanticizing poverty as a way to humanize people um as opposed to like acknowledging the very horrible harsh realities of dystopian and I know everyone says it but this is the way to say it late stage capitalism which is what we're dealing with and explain to people you don't like it you don't like people ODing in front of your house you don't like you know, watching tent cities get built because people have nowhere else to go. Fucking do something. Yeah, it is bad. It's bad. And is we know it's, we, we're not going to pretend that it's like, okay, because it's not okay. But unfortunately, the conversation will never go there. It never will. Um, you can even acknowledging the very li- uh, legitimate grievances of people who, you have to live around these uh, encampments, and um, the the very real threats of you know violence and drugs. This is all real. Like it's it's very silly to try and say that that's not the case. And it also doesn't. It, it takes away the sense of urgency of what's really happening, and it gives people an excuse to throw like a program like this as if this will be the answer. It will not be the answer. It will never be the answer. It's fine. It's nice. I'm sure that somebody will get, you know, help in a very individualistic way. um, But it's not going to solve this problem. And and, and we're going to keep having these discussions and we're going to keep going back and forth with this because no one's willing to have a very transparent and intellectually honest discussion about it. And like you said, Ryan, their pendulum will swing and right now it's defund the police and watch, watch when people don't like the um, the fact that no one's being, nothing's being done about the person in their driveway, the pendulum will swing back. and it's exactly what happened in San Francisco already with the DA and it's very sad because it's not what should happen. It's horrible. It doesn't work either, but they're out of sight out of mind in that way because we just warehouse them in jails in prisons. So you don't have to think about it as much. Right. Um, it's whole, it's, it's, it's a very, it, this is obviously just a program. It's not like, I would say it's neutral. It's not bad or good. The problem is the, the attention that it gets and the kind of hype around it. And even the fact that they're writing an article about it, like can literally write one about every program everywhere. They're all like this. Um, I'm ready for somebody to have an honest discussion and make people deal with the realities of the world that we've created through inequality, which is what this is and address it in that way or just say, fucking deal with it. You don't like it, deal with it because there's nothing you can do to change it if you don't want to change it.
0: Would it be too reductive to just say take that 6 million and build some fucking affordable housing in San Francisco instead of this? And, you know, somehow ensure that at least some of the people who might be served by this program are going to get housed there because especially in a city like that, it just seems to me like that it's not like there's ever like one fix. Like I think these things have to be more comprehensive, but you know, it's straight like that to me. Seems like that if we really only have the six million to spend, that would be a more durable, productive use for it.
1: I mean, I'm not, uh, I, I, I'm not the money person. I'm not the money cruncher in these scenarios. However, um, I don't even think it's about building because we have vacancies. That's the most upsetting thing. Is that the, the the vacancies are there, you, you have vacant houses, you have vacant apartments. Um, where I live in Los Angeles, there's this monster uh, real estate developer who's put up all these buildings that are like named after like Italian artists. Like there's the Da Vinci or the Orsini or whatever. And they're all ugly, which is beside the point. I'm just saying he's got terrible taste. Um, they're completely unaffordable. They're like considered luxury apartments. When you walk in, it's like 500 square feet, um, you know, this basic as they come, which is beside the point, they're empty is my point. Like no one's gonna, no one can afford it. Um, he's bought up all this space downtown. Um, and, and I've heard people say, well, um, if it's so unaffordable, if, if if um, why, why, don't, why don't they just rent it out then? Why don't they just lower the price? It doesn't make sense for them to hold onto it, but it actually does. Um, the Airbnb it, they will rent it out here and there, and then eventually somebody will come around, that's willing to pay that money, so they'll hold out. Mm-hmm. And you need to for the, the the whole landlord-tenant relationship just perpetuates this. Um, there, I, I mean, just off the top of my head, if you've had a vacant apartment for more than three months, you should be forced to have to rent it to someone who is low income.
0: I, yeah, I agree. Cause it's a similar problem here. And I, I think we do need to build, especially cause we need to build, you know, kind of larger scale, the, the stuff that which has been almost totally demonized in North America, like larger scale housing mm-hmm. that is you know, kind of in an urban area and do that in a way that works as opposed to the, the kind of familiar, you know, every, everyone knows examples of it not working like Cabrini Green in Chicago or Ramona Gardens in L.A. or whatever. But like, I think there's a way you could do a lot of that that would be more like, you know, examples in the U.K. and, and Northern Europe where most people agree it's pretty, pretty successful um, or at least much better. Uh, but yeah, like, I mean, we do have all this, this stock, which is underutilized and it's crazy because the, the, you know, in Toronto, the vacancy rent for available rental units is quite low, but then you've got all this stuff that's not being used as a rental unit. And, and then also, you, you know, if we wanted to get really radical, you also have second homes, you have, you know like a single family of a couple wealthy people who might own two three properties you know like it's i there's you know people i know of and stuff like that where you know there's like the property in the city the kind of cottage or more rural property and then they maybe own like a condo you know for their kids to live in that they hypothetically might rent out at some point and stuff like that that's a lot for people who, frankly, could all kind of live under one roof. Um, so, stuff like that, you know, kind of like a, a vacant home tax, of some sort of thing yeah. to people to rent stuff out. Mansion tax, you know, you've, like the use of space in the city I live in is idiotic. You've got huge neighborhoods with like huge lots, big houses, super low density, and then by comparison. Low-income people are packed into, you know, very high-density areas that are often surrounded by the low-density areas, uh, which makes them even worse to live in because they're kind of transit islands and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many reforms that I think would would address this beyond the, the team talked about in this article.
1: Yeah. Um, and again, like, great go team. That's fine. But I, my, my anger comes from the fact that like this is being treated as some sort of revolutionary idea. This has never been done before. We're going to try this. We're going to divert call- You know, I work as a first responder. I, on Wednesday nights, I, I have three jobs. So I also work as a first mental health responder. This is already happening. Um, I, <laughs> I get I call families and they go. This would have been nice if you called me nine hours ago when I made the call. Now mm-hmm. we already called nine one one. I mean that's the response I get many times because it's true. Um, so I I already I, I just already know how this is going to go, um, and I'm I'm begging for an intellectually honest, transparent discussion about homelessness and what, what we really need to do as opposed to, you know, slogans, um, watered down conversations, um, because it is like a, I don't mean to sound hyperbolic, but like, this is a, this is like a life and death thing at this point, or just fucking deal with it, deal with it. Like, you don't like it? Tough shit. Like, deal with it. <laughs> like, you know, cause that's, that's the honest truth, right? Like, you don't want to make these like, Sh- sweeping structural changes deal with it.
0: Do you think there's any merit to the idea that there's like one thing I remember from summer of 2020 was these kind of listicles and so forth that were like, here are alternatives to calling the police, here's things you can do instead of calling the police. Oh my God. Is some of this about scratching that itch or kind of giving people a a, a kind of feel good option or alternative?
1: Absolutely. And I felt the same way when that list came out because I I did a lot of discussions with people where I was like, if you call this, this is, I want you to know this is, like our number was on there, like literally. And I was like, you need to know that this is not for emergencies. And also that's part of the problem too, is that people call police for everything because we live in this kind of like hyper i need an an like what is what's the word i'm looking for like immediate satisfaction uh i need this taken care of right away when there are absolutely things that you shouldn't be calling for police anyway right but people refuse to wait people refuse to kind of look for other alternative responses so that was when those lists came out i was explaining to them so this is a this is like a suicide hotline. They're not going to come to you. Um, This is a person you can talk to on the phone. This is our team. We have a 72 hour response Um, when uh, so hopefully you can wait that long. Um, You know, these are if if, the point being that if you can wait, you shouldn't be calling the police anyway. So there's a lot of like, again, then this is part of meeting the expectations of the public of what they want and what they expect and what it looks like. Because I know I get a lot of anger, I've talked about when when I, I'm going out to a violent call and, and I have to call police for backup, who by the way, like, and I'm gonna keep saying it because I feel like I have to normally walk away and tell us to deal with it by ourselves. Um, and we normally leave the person who's uh, languishing in the throes of a very severe psychotic illness because and I'm not asking for them to throw down I'm just asking them to be like, hey, I'm a police officer you have to get on this gurney because we said so. so you know like or like you're, this is an order you have to get help today as opposed to like just walking away um, So like you know people get so angry they're like well you're a social worker you should be able to handle this um, I can't deescalate someone who's holding a gun. I can't de-escalate someone who's holding a machete. I got I got uh, people were very angry once because they, I brought police for someone who was holding a machete. Um, so like, it's, it's this expectation and realistic conversations about what social workers can do. And I don't wanna be a police officer by the way, like I never signed up for that. Um, I don't mind working in high pressure, um, unpredictable and sometimes very scary environments. I love, I, I thrive in the work that I do but I'm not a police officer. I don't want to be a police officer, and I would never, ever, ever, ever want to even be any part of it. I like also feel like I have to say this. I fucking hate the police. But I feel like sometimes I sound like I'm I'm defending them when I'm not. I think they completely need to be. There needs to be a complete redefinition of what their job even is. But you're completely you're completely unrealistic if you think that this can be solved by putting a social worker somewhere without all these other things happening first.
0: Although, you know, going back to the movie that I watched, you know, if you, like Shea Wiggum, have, like, you know, a couple drinks in you and a Desert Eagle, then maybe you can uh, kind of t- turn the whole situation around.
1: I've, I've been known to do very unorthodox things, so fuck
0: it, we'll do it live. Exactly. Yeah, you know, uh, you, say, <laughs> you know, like, I'm not going to do the Sean Connery accent, but, you know, they bring a machete, you bring a you bring a revolver, you know, like. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: but exactly. So.
0: It, um, was something else I wanted to say from what you said about I've lost it. The the kind of alternatives to policing point, but I I forget what exact thing I wanted to say. Um. Yeah. Well. I think we may have almost arrived at an natural endpoint, but we should probably do some sort of closing thing that Doug can edit together. If we I I hate, I apologize. I feel like I'm kind of running out of gas after my. Oh no, it's okay. I think report. this is a
1: a good like amount of times I think it went okay yeah
0: yeah, yeah. I think it's a good you know and I think we've got enough to get it to a shorter but tight you know kind of 4550 minute thing um, so do we do you want to do kind of like anything kind of summative to kind of conclude or
1: um, I could just let me think um, I mean what I want to say something like fuck the police and (laughs) um,
0: fuck the police, but fuck you too. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly. Fuck the police, but fuck you too. Um, No, but fuck the police, but let's stop pretending that we're not all seeing the same thing and stop gaslighting people into thinking that this is going to be something new and innovative when it's not. And have crucial, uncomfortable conversations, and like be realistic. Like I'm just so ready for some leftist politician to look at someone and be like, "You don't want to. You don't want to build. You don't want to hold landlords responsible. You don't want to create mental health infrastructure or deprivatize healthcare and defund private prisons. Deal with it. Deal with it."
0: You know, like one thing I think, like I would hope people on the left can take on is just the lack of quick fixes because there are none. Things are really bad. We're really far from the historic gains, you know, like that we once had and the, the kind of road back from that is, is going to be, if it's even doable is, is a pretty tough slog. And especially what I would say to our, professional managerial class, you know, woke PMC brethren who might be listening is we should be especially wary of quick fixes that involve us exclusively or in a leadership role because the track record for that is very poor and there's a lot of reasons to be suspicious of that. And if it seems too easy, then it probably is. Like I, and this goes back to to the the comment I was talking about. Like we are not the solution overall. At best, our role is kind of ambivalent, or maybe just marginal. At worst, it's kind of negative. And I think to the record, especially of the past couple of decades, when you have left organizations where members of the PMC wind up being in charge speaks for itself. So yeah, so these kind of programs, there is obviously some merit to having alternatives out there, having frontline workers, that kind of thing, especially if it's well-funded and links up to other services that are also well funded. Like if, for example, the social worker is going to talk to somebody and actually get them in a bed Uh, you know, get them into some sort of more secure situation where they can get treatment as opposed to just like shuffling them through some other emergency service that just, you know, is almost like a, you know, kind of cycle of short-term solutions that just end up basically in the same place. But the real fixes, you know, come with working class political power. Like, and that's something we don't have, that's something we we need to build. But you listener, most of our listeners, you know, your role in that and my role in that is probably likely to be more of an auxiliary supporting role rather than, than a leadership role.
1: Uh, I really want to reiterate that. That was so good, Ryan. Um, There are no quick fixes. And I think that that's what I've been trying to say, but you just said it. Like, more succinctly and eloquently um, no, there are, are no quick fixes um, be be very weary like of any of these programs that are like this uh, nonprofit and you know social worker led you know whatever collective um, because my worry with that is also they're gonna delegitimize the work that we do and they're already doing it um, because I do think, I, I teach it. I, I believe in the work that I do. Um, but I also believe in the limitations of the work that I do. <laughs> and, I, and, and and having these like um, very real and honest raw discussions about what the expectations of having a social worker, having social workers in these roles means without the structural uh, changes to support those roles. Um, and I And I've said it before and I'll probably keep saying it again, is this agency funded by the Koch brothers? Maybe <laughs> because now they the, all the attention will be on this, and they can be another look at these liberal city policies uh, not working. You know, led by these woke social workers that are not you know hard on crime, which is you know um, what will happen and what already happened. So yes, I very well said, and that's exactly the point.